Welcome to Gerstel's Making Labs Work podcast. It's a show about analytical chemistry, interesting instruments, and the challenging analytical problems that they solve. Welcome to a new episode of the Making Labs Work podcast from Gerstel. Today with me is, of course, Kurt Saxon. Hello, Kurt. Hello, Jan. Good to be back again. Yeah. But before we really start, we take a deep breath. So, and please breath out of your lungs. And what this deep breath has to do with analytical chemistry, we will learn today from Ilaria Belluomo. Welcome, Ilaria. Hi, Jan. Hi, Kurt. Very, very happy to be here today with you. Yeah, good, to, good to talk to you again. It's been a while. I mentioned that already that you have worked with oxygen, with nitrogen, what we get in our lungs. So um, I'm very interested to, to uh, listen from you what you can measure analytically wise out of our breath. So, um, but before we start that, uh, let us know and let our listeners know where you are com coming from and where you are in the moment. Hi, thanks, Jan. Uh, yeah, it would be easier to work with oxygen and nitrogen since they they are basically the 99% of breath, but I work with a very small part that is the volatile organic compounds. Uh, yes, I'm a research associate at Imperial College London uh, in the group of Professor George Hanna. Uh, I work with him since uh, six years now. It's been a while. And uh, I mean, I work with mass spectrometry all my life. Uh, I started a PhD in Italy, in Bologna, and then uh, I moved to Bordeaux uh, at the Neurocentrum Agendi, where I finished my PhD. I was supposed to be there six months. And then, you know, life, I've been there six years. And, uh, and then uh, I moved to London. Uh, I was working with the LC uh, before, NGC, doing measurement of steroids and endocannabinoids. But then then, you know, I saw this job opening uh, in, the, in the lab of Profana and I was like, Brett, I mean, this sounds like the future because, you know, nobody wants to go for uh, diagnostic invasive technique. So I think with the future, we will move more and more to non-invasive tests. So when I saw this job opening, I had no doubts. Uh, I did the interview and Prof offered me the job straight afterwards. And uh, yeah, since then I worked there. Uh, I was hired to work on a project on colorectal cancer. So this was a huge project. We recruit 1,800 more or less patients. Um, That's a lot. Yeah, That's a lot of people. It was, yeah. uh, you know, this is the number you need for such a new diagnostic technique. And this was only the first part because the second part just started. This was finished last year and it was published on gastroenterology. And uh, then now we have a validation study that is going on. So, you know, huge numbers, huge clinical trials. That's what we do. So since then, since uh, six years that I work at Imperial, I work with breath analysis. It's a, it's a really interesting topic to me. I, I've been following this now for about 13 years off and on. <clears throat> I'm, not, I'm not the expert that you are, but uh, I guess, ironically, one of the first things, it, it, it wasn't breath, but it made me think about it. Um, Back in uh, right around 2003 or four, uh, someone pointed out that if you eat asparagus and then go to the bathroom, if you have the right genes, you'll smell 
asparagusic acid. You literally smell the asparagus right there. So your your metabolism, your 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 own metabolism, and your own, and you have to have the right genes. It's not just your metabolism; it's also your own genetics. Um, gives you a hint to what's going on in your body. And, and, and I think that's where, the, and so of course that in that case, that, that's urine related, but you're, you're breathing out your metabolites all the time and they, they depend on what's going on. And that, that's, what's cool about what you guys are doing. Yes, Kurt, this is very interesting because breath can give you like a precise image of what is going on in your body in that moment. I mean, all the VOC that are in breath are like end products of uh, metabolic processes or microbiome, you know, it depends then on the VOC. It's just a, such a great potential. The problem is that, of course, I mean, we needed a lot of technical advancement to see VOC mm -hmm. because they are trace compound. We needed mass spec to do huge progress to arrive at the moment in which we are now because you know i always say it's just 50 years ago that for the first time voc have been detected in breath and compared to other branches of analytical chemistry it's just so new but uh, it has a great potential as you said it's we breathe all the time so and uh, this is the beauty of it because it's completely non-invasive i mean what i always say you breathe anyway so <laughs> yeah. we can collect <laughs> <You> them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully you are yes yeah. <laughs> hopefully hopefully you breathe anyway <laughs> but this is basically the reason why patients like very rarely say no to us when we do the trials because you know it's so easy and uh, it doesn't cost you anything at the end mm. and there's no, needle, no needles with this so you, you yeah. can't no. complain about the blood sample or whatever else yeah. not it, even bought yeah. for urine you know that also like it looks easy but anyway compared to breath it becomes difficult to use urine <laughs> yeah no kidding no yeah, yeah it Speaking about advancements over time, yeah, I, it, from what the you know, 13 or so years I've been watching this, and the, the use of GCMS uh, and, and thermal desorption GCMS for volatile has actually been around a long time. That, that's been largely worked out. What I've seen over the last few years at first, um, and I'm sure you have your own take on this, at first there was changes and now kind of standardization around how those sample breath samples are taken. And love you to go into detail about how you guys are taking samples. But the most important thing and what brought you and I together was, okay, that's great. You can measure all this stuff, but which ones matter? <laughs> that, that's always that, that's always been the catch. And you were getting really close to getting that. So, but yeah, getting on to the sampling side of it. So yeah, it's breath, but how do you collect a breath sample from a patient? Yeah, we have our own device uh, that we develop in collaboration with the company. We want to make things very easy for patients. So basically the patients breathe in a bag. So then uh, basically the device that we use push, it's a pump that push the, the breath through the tubes, the, the thermal desorption tubes. And, uh, you know, the thermal desorption tubes are such a good tool that uh, it's like uh, it became essential for breath analysis because, uh, as I was mentioning before, when you have like huge numbers in the clinical trials, you need something that is easily transportable. It's uh, possible to store because, of course, you uh, you can uh, you you have some delay in between collection and analysis. So um, yeah, we use this uh, collection device and uh, TD tubes for all our studies that uh, have uh, GC and the thermal desorption. Mm -hmm. So how many volumes to breathe in, in, the, in the sampling device before you put the tube on? So is it one cycle of breath or is it a minute or, or how can we categorize or, or limit that or whatever? 
Uh, Jan, this is a very good question because this depends on the patient. Uh, ah, there okay. are patients that when I do, to inf- because you basically need to inflate a bag. It's like a balloon, you know. Okay. Uh, when I do, one breath is enough. Okay, how many uh, liters are in, in, in the bag? It's uh, slightly less than two liters. Two liters, okay. Two liters, more so, or less. So just to give me and, and, and all the listeners an, an imagination how, how big that is. So, okay. Yeah, you know, it's uh, if you imagine the colored balloon, the classic one, mm-hmm. uh, it's a bit slightly, slightly uh, smaller than this. So, uh, yeah, one, one breath, it's enough. But, uh, for example, uh, we have some projects uh, like I'm uh, leading a trial on Parkinson patients that they have a bit more difficulty. So it's, uh, it's a bit, uh, it can be a couple of breaths, but uh, no more than that. So let me do. The deep dive in when you search for Parkinson markers or whatever is it to to recognize Parkinson before it, uh, the the, uh, the um, people recognize that in their body or is it when they have already get Parkinson? What is you your know, idea? We hope there is something that uh, probably a few people know uh, that are not in the Parkinson uh, world that uh, you have like gastrointestinal symptoms like even five years before tremors. Yeah. So, you know, Parkinson's diagnosis for the moment is based on symptoms, uh, yeah, on motor right. symptoms. So we hope because these symptoms, uh, these gastrointestinal symptoms uh, are uh, very likely due to changing microbiome. So what we hope to pick up with VOC is the change in microbiome that occurs so many years before the tremor. So this is the, 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 the rationale of the project. And uh, yeah, let's see. The project is at the start, so we will. Uh, I'll let you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please, please, please. It's a little bit late for um, my family because it's already uh, there. But uh, yeah, probably. You know, I, I press my thumbs um, for the for all the Parkinson patients here in the it's world. It's impressive so. how everybody has someone in the family. I mean, my grandmother had Parkinson for 30 years. It's something that it's so in, it's increasing like the number of people with Parkinson, 2%, I think, more or less of the older than 65 years old have Parkinson. So it's like huge. Oh, yeah. There, there was a nurse in the UK um, who could, yeah, so I mean, a Parkinson's space and she could actually smell something different. And then her husband started to get this smell and she's like, uh-oh, uh, better get tested and, and lo and behold. So yeah, if you, if you Google, you know, smell of Parkinson's, you'll actually find this story. It's, it's pretty neat. Mm-hmm. But, but it, that, that's, if you want to know why in a nutshell, why the analytical chemistry of breath is so important, literally, yeah, it, for, at least for that woman, uh, she could she could kind of tell who might have Parkinson's. It was, it, it was a clue ahead of time to, to get further testing. You know, it didn't say by itself you had Parkinson's, but it's like, yeah, maybe you should get your blood tested or something here because you, you were probably on to something. But that brings us to the next problem. Uh, so she was able to have some kind of a smell. But the problem was, as chemists, we've been, we've been really hard-pressed to figure out, well, what exactly are you smelling? Which, which of those chemicals, because it's not just one, it's not like, I have Parkinson's, I breathe out chemical X. It's not that simple. And that's something that you and Dr. Hannah have been working on. Yes, it's not that simple, even because, I mean, usually there is like uh, a panel of compounds that is involved. 
And uh, also, I mean, we have a lot of um, uh, inter-individual variability, you know. I mean, humans are so different from each other and uh, uh, Brett, it's influenced by everything and learning how to take into account. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of studies lately, the group of Prof. Hanna, us, it's going more and more in uh, studies to understand where the VOC come from, because you have to give them a biological meaning. I mean, it's easy to find something that has like alterated level in the breadth of a patient compared to a control, but where it's coming from? Is it really related to the disease? So, you know, it's interesting to do like uh, work in bacteria, in cell. We are also like a line of research of one of my colleagues about organoids. It's, um, this is something that we're getting more and more in because, you know, we need to understand uh, the relationship between this biomarker and disease because if not, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, you need a very large study in the end. I mean, and, and that's what I think from the outside looking in is it has, has slowed things down. I'm beginning to see these large studies, though. Um, the, the one the one that you and I were involved in, how many patients was that? 5,000 or something? I can't remember. It was it was a lot of patients. Yeah, the um, yeah, we have we have huge study. Uh, I mean, it's uh, the, the the one I did uh, on colorectal cancer. Yeah, it was one thousand eight hundred. You know, <laughs> this means a lot of tubes, a lot of data, a lot of a lot of samples. Yeah. yeah, a lot of samples, metadata. I mean, we collaborate. The study was on in seven centers across London, but um, we have the huge clinical trial that Profana is doing for the um, the gastric cancer. That this is uh, so many sites, like all around the UK, uh, and this is. Uh, I mean, you need to have uh, a good strategy. Uh, to collect breath and to analyze it because uh, it's difficult to handle uh, this, all these samples. Oh, I can Im- and I can imagine the chemometrics too. I mean, I'm as an analytical chemist, I have a, a coffee talk kind of understanding of chemometrics. You know, I, can, I know a few general things, but, but the level you're doing it at, I mean, you know, you've got 1,800 patients and, you know, potentially 50, 100 or 1,000 volatiles per patient. You've got to try to find yes. patterns and all that. That's, yes. that's got to be a challenge. Yes, it is. It's quite challenging, yeah. Fortunately, we collaborate with a lot of people that are very good. <laughs> so we are a big group. So inside the group, we have different expertise, fortunately, that we can match for each project. And also we have a lot of collaboration in the industry and other research group that are helping us. We, we try to do the best we can, you know. It's something in which we really need to invest this non-invasive technique. So it's, we really believe in it and we do the best we can. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, it's you, you got to have some experts because you know Microsoft Excel is not going to be. <laughs> not gonna no, be it's useful, data. but uh, <laughs> you can't do all the job. <laughs> exactly. When you talk about so many people, so many tubes, so many uh, ways to collect uh, your samples, how long it took from taking a sample to get it in your laboratory? Uh, we tried everything we can to reduce the time. Uh, We have couriers coming and going every day to bring uh, samples uh, back from hospital every day. Okay. Like uh, we try to ship back the tubes on the same day. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, we wait maximum like a couple of days, but the tube is coming back immediately to to our lab. Yeah, just to give me an idea of how, how long it took to be because sometimes something can be loosened on, on ways or on, on, on so that's that's why I'm asking. 
Mm. We, we, we try to have, you know, we have like uh, a lab team, our lab manager and uh, the two analysts that uh, are like the precision, like uh, expert. And uh, yeah, we, we are like uh, and so on, on it, you know, every day, mind everything. So and then uh, we have one person responsible for every t- trial, every site. You know, it's, uh, it's uh, as I say, a huge network of collaboration that allow us to do things in the best way. Mm-hmm. So if you're, so if you're getting those tubes, you said, and this is really intriguing to me, but when I want to start thinking about the nuts and bolts of this, you're getting them in and you, you're trying to ship them back to the hospital that night. That means you're running a lot of tubes. I mean, that's a, that, that's gotta be a lot. I mean, you know, in GCMS, the runtime for most like bottles analysis is typically 20 to 30 minutes, sometimes longer. So, so you either have to do one of two things, and, and this is what we ended up collaborating on. You, you either have to get a lot of GCMSs, or there's another alternative to this. So, which is which is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, we have a lot of GC, but at the same time, I mean, we are always, always uh, trying to develop uh, high throughput methods. So this is where uh, I collaborated with SIFT, with the SIFT company, uh, because you know um, the SIFT. Uh, is a direct sampling instrument. So in the way in which the patient can breathe directly inside the inlet, but of course it's not possible to have an instrument for each hospital site in which collect the samples. I mean, as the company say, it's possible, but uh, it's not like the practical way. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna drive, so, drive, the, drive the van to the hospital and bring and, and bring the patient out. Yeah, that's not. Yeah, really, yeah. yeah. It would be difficult. I mean, maybe there will be way more people that tell us no. So it's uh, it's not feasible. Uh, so that's why we started this collaboration with uh, with Sift and uh, and with you, of course. Um, to mm, like uh, match the thermal desorption um, technology with the SIFT. The SIFT is, you know, we use SIFT in our lab since forever. We collaborate since many years with Patrick Spaniel, that is one of the world leading experts of the technique. Mm-hmm. Um, my boss has always been uh, a good uh, supporter of the technique uh, because it's easy, it's user friendly, and uh, it's quick that this is something that, as you say, Kurt, it's very important. We basically, well, no, we, you put a TD on the shift <laughs> um, and I just used it. I'm a, I'm a user of it. Um, so in this way, we, we were able to develop a targeted method of 21 compounds that uh, has a run time of six minutes. Uh, and this is, you know, compared to the GC time is long. I think this can be a technique that it's complementary with GC because, you know, you can do deep and targeted with GC and then develop targeted method with SIFT that can run in routine. So yeah. this is my idea of what a breath lab should be and uh, what where we are heading to. Um, so once you have the panel of compounds that you find through discovery study, then you can do a method on the SIFT with a TD and, uh, you know, just run the tubes. Uh, basically, you can do a study in three days uh, for the how quick it is. And uh, oh, yeah. also the data analysis is very, very easy. Yeah, but but you hit the nail on the head. You you have to know what you're looking for, because um, you have to you have to optimize the you have to optimize any direct MS. Uh, uh, you have to optimize before going in uh, which ions you want to look for and all that. So it, it works great if you know what you're looking for, because yeah, the run times yeah the three four five six minutes a run, and it, it can be really really quick that way. I think yes. and we do, we do a lot of work uh, with with the other researchers in GCMS, and I think it works best GCMS or like uh, G, multi-dimensional 
regional GC. We, we have a few collaborators doing that kind of work. I think that's great if you're in the um, uh, discovery phase where you're trying to yes. understand what all is there. Yes. But, but in the but in the end, you know, the, the real power of this, uh, you know, if you, if you want to look at colorectal cancer or Parkinson's, is you don't, you know, you just want to know which one. Do you have this twenty one or thirteen or sixty one, whatever the number is, volatiles that say, hey, you should be getting another test. And and that that high throughput application, that's what the, that's what that's the only time. Uh, and I've been doing thermal desorption since my professional days back uh, for international paper in two thousand. Um, so yeah, geez, almost 25 years. <laughs> it's, it's the only time, um, that, that, uh, I've ever done thermal desorption without a column in between the TD and the detector. So it's really cool how this all works out though. I'm not going to bore everybody with those details. If you're curious, you know, uh, uh, give, give us a ring here and uh, we'll go into the detail, but it, I'll just say this much. It was different than the normal TD approach. You, you had mm-hmm. to alter how the tube itself is analyzed. That's my little tantalizing clue to send me an email. <laughs> no. no, I was just saying that um, I always insist saying that these are a complementary technique and not alternative. It's something yeah. that uh, it should be, they can, they can serve a clinical study in a very different way and they are both essential. Um, of course, I mean, something that we really care in our group is uh, to develop a strong, strong technique and strategy of quality control, then this is something that uh, I think it should be like primary in something that is not so standardized and so like uh, uh, established as breath analysis. This is something that we really like. My, my boss is obsessed. He's really like, this is the first thing uh, in the colorectal study. We tend to exclude samples just because we had a slightly mm, sense that uh, there was something not good. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, uh, this is uh, this is what I always insist on, that these are two techniques that should live together. No, I agree with that. Which results can you share already? So is, is there something in, I would say in, in the broad, in the broad audience we have, uh, to share what, what, what you can say now, now we have took the sample and then we have, um, analyzed them on the, on the SIFT or alternative on a normal GCMS, but what is the outcome you can tell us about for the future? And where, where are you now with it? Yeah, that's, that's a better question. Thank you. Yeah, well, there's not much I can share, I can say, uh, but uh, I mean, uh, now I'm uh, after we finish, uh, I finished the colorectal uh, um, cancer study together with uh, Georgia, my PhD student. Um, I moved on, so I, I start a new line of research in our lab that uh, is about neuroscience because I, I did neuroscience during my PhD and I always said like, kind of a passion for it. My husband is a neuroscientist as well. So we are a family, mm. it's a family thing. And uh, <laughs> it's, um, so I have these two studies, the Parkinson one that I already mentioned that is still in the recruitment phase. So we started like, it was a few months ago. Uh, so we, I don't have much to share uh, about this. Mm, and then we have another, I have another study that is going on together with the, Professor Matthews and uh, Eleonora Lugara at uh, UCL about epilepsy. So we take the Mm. breath before and after epileptic seizure. uh, And we are trying to establish a panel of compound that is related to seizure. And also these we are still recruiting. We are a bit more uh, advanced in the recruitment phase, but uh, we still have a year to go on. So, you know, I'm a bit at the beginning with my things. uh, So I don't have much to share 
for okay. now as a result. Well, I hope well, to have soon. Well, yeah. I'll share. Um, let me volunteer as a let me volunteer as a data point. Uh, uh, the epilepsy topic hits home uh, for me because I have epilepsy. Um, really? It's been, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, so. Uh, set the picture. I was 26 years old, driving home, driving home from graduate school, with my wife and our infant son in the car, pull up to a red light and bang, full tonic clonic seizure right there on the spot. <laughs> so yeah, it, what a surprise <laughs> to, to, to me and everyone else. Fortunately, no one was hurt. But um, yeah, in, in, you know, in the end, they, they end up diagnosing this as I think it's sub, subepidermal heterotropia of the occipital horn. And if you get into the details, those of you in the audience who are into, you know, physiology, which I'm not, um, you, you'll find out that five to 15% of the population has that. Yeah. So it's not exactly, it's, it's like, it's something that the neurologists say, well, you have seizures because of, we think maybe, you know, it's, it's, it's there's no clear dotted line or no clear line. It's only dotted. So anything that would help, you know, it would help understand epilepsy better, you know, looking pre and post seizure, you know, my, my, and my, my seizures now are largely controlled, but I mean, say 99% controlled, but I still get these days where, you know, something will happen and I have a problem focusing. I'd, I'd love to know if my breath VOCs change when this happens. <laughs> that would be really cool. <laughs> so so I, I will personally volunteer as a data point. <laughs> this is, you know, I'm organizing in, uh, something uh, with uh, with patients. We we always are in contact with patients representative because I think uh, all the clinical studies should be shaped, you know, speaking with patients yeah. of the disease. Uh, for the epilepsy, well, what you say is precisely what we are going, what we want to do, because you know, to have a real diagnosis of epilepsy, you should have an EEG during seizure. So this is something that is not always possible. And mm -hmm. uh, these patients that we recruit, they go to the hospital and they are there for a week with the EEG continuously going and waiting basically for a seizure to have more yep. uh, info about their uh, diagnosis. So we take breath before and after the seizure at certain time points. Um, but it's uh, difficult to understand because we commonly associate seizure with epilepsy, but it's not always like this. So the diagnosis of epilepsy is something that is very difficult. And um, breath is something that, uh, you know, as I said already, probably 100 times is non-invasive. So it's yeah. something that it's possible to take, even in moments, uh, so difficult moments, medical emergency, you know. Um, yeah. So that's why we think that breath can have uh, an application in the epilepsy. And yeah, that's really cool then. So I would assume you're looking then not at just the full-blown tonic-clonic seizures, but also like absent seizures and probably all levels of epilepsy? Yes, even uh, non-epileptic seizure. Actually, mm -hmm. this is uh, this will be the key because we are trying to to to, to find the difference between uh, epilepsy and non-epileptic seizure. Yeah, that's a good point too. Uh, that happens to a lot of people. That they, they have a seizure, and like the first thing they do, yeah, they did for me. They did a full blood screen, looking at blood sugar, because yeah. because that's an obvious way to have a yeah. seizure. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, once once you rule that out, you're like, well, what was it? Neurology, and yes, an EEG is helpful. But you know, like in my case, you know, that the EEG didn't show anything after the seizure, and then uh, yeah, they, they they do a complete MRI of my brain and find something that you know, about a sixth the population has anyway. So yeah. to this day, I don't really know, you know, where, where it comes from and why. And, and the, the breath volatiles would be an interesting add-on picture to that. That's cool. So, yeah. so you, have, you have epilepsy, colorectal cancer, Parkinson's. What else is the community looking at in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of breath testing? What are their areas? Well, the easy uh, thing 
uh, of course, is cancer. I mean, cancer yeah. is a survival that is dramatically linked to when you find out to have it. So mm. to the uh, diagnosis time. So, of course, uh, something non-invasive would be like uh, a triage. Uh, that uh, will allow people to do um, uh, population screening, you know, lar more large to, to have a good uh, uh, participation of the population in the screening. So, of course, cancer is, uh, cancer, I would say, is the main application of breath analysis. Mm. Uh, our group, it's a cancer group. We have a trial going on uh, for different types of cancer. We have the two big trials about uh, esophagogastric cancer and the pancreatic cancer. And then uh, we have other projects about uh, liver cancer Cancer, prostate cancer, um, the Barrett esophagus, that is a precancer lesion of the esophagus. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, uh, of course, we have the validation um, study for the colorectal cancer. And uh, yeah, so this is what uh, in our group we do. In the past, we had projects about um, respiratory infection. Uh, and, uh, you know, so yeah, that's what we do mainly. But uh, yeah, the neuroscience is the newest part uh, that I just started last year. And um Yeah. And I mean, there are many, many applications, you know, that are possible. Of mm. course, we are a cancer group, so that's our main application. But, you know, there are so many things that Brett can tell us about our health. Yeah, pancreatic cancer is another good one that way, because almost always by the time they find that, uh, by the time you have symptoms of it, it's it's too late. I mean, the This survival the rate of pancreatic cancer is incredibly low. So yeah. you know, if, you, if, if you can manage to pull off, th this would be a major miracle in, in pancreatic cancer if you can find the, the VOC markers for that, because that would be huge in survival rates. I mean, yeah, uh, the symptoms yeah, are so not specific, you know, this is the, even though, I mean, I saw, of course, very die in the direct way for colorectal cancer. Uh, when we analyzed the symptoms that the patients had, these are something that can be very, like, uh, very possible, something benign, but then, you know, colorectal cancer has a huge mortality if you speak up at the fourth stage. Yeah. So um, this is something that we try to address. Well, speaking from my own personal experience as, a, as, as an adult male over 50 who's had a bunch of colorectal scan cancer screenings, in other words, colonoscopies, I would far rather <laughs> have my breath done. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Kurt, because this is the world point of it. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, the world. <laughs> we, we don't want to replace col uh, like colonoscopy. Of course, this is something that is telling you a lot of things, but at least to have uh, another triage before to say, yeah, oh, yeah. you should go for colonoscopy or like, oh, no, it's useless that you go colon for colonoscopy. So this is the main point. Mm -hmm. well, I'll keep hoping, though, that you find the perfect solution that removes colonoscopy from the table. But, <laughs> but, 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 but until then we'll just, we'll just have to live with it every, every five years. Right. So is that, I believe this suggestion so, it's or 10 years, yeah, it's, it's something years. like that. It depends on which country you're in. It's either five or 10 years. So once you yeah. turn 50, so, mm -hmm. or have a family history, of course. So yeah. Interesting. That's really neat. When, when, when you search for such complicated things like the cancer or other, or, or what you mentioned, Uh, are you also looking, for example, for the acetone, which is um, um, a marker for sh for sugar in, in uh, illness? Is, is that also what you are looking directly with and, and can can give the, um, the client some, uh, a hint to, to let that check? 
Uh, not really. I mean, usually we don't really look at acetone because, as you said, Jan, acetone is directly correlated to feeding status. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, so acetone strongly depends if you eat or not. Uh, it's just going down after you eat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so okay. no, I mean, okay. it's it's difficult to, to relate it to a pathology since there le- is its level are too okay. much no, no, related. It's just, to it's just if, if you see that, that you can can give a hint to to them to say, hey, this uh, this guy has a problem. Uh, have a look well, at that. you know, usually we take breath when patients are fasted, so very likely mm. the acetone will be up. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then you know the levels are so subjective so okay. it depends what is high for me can be low for you yeah, yeah, yeah. depends on your body weight on a lot of things body composition so yeah it's too much uh, individual okay yeah. yeah makes no sense which leads us right back to the statistics problem <clears throat> you've got such a large variation on vocs just due to the population you've got to you have to get that pulled out with the chemometrics before you even begin to look at uh, markers of disease so that's you know that that, that, and that goes back to what I've seen change in the last couple of years uh, from the work that you've done uh, in Dr. Hannon's group, these large studies, that was, that's what was always missing from, from my humble analytical chemist from the outside looking in was always, well, okay, this looks promising, but how do you know that for sure? And you, when you do these large studies, you can finally pick out, you know, what are the significant VOCs that you want to look By the way, I keep saying VOCs, volatile organic compounds. <laughs> should have should have started that <laughs> should have started that off in the beginning of the conversation. But, yeah, the, <clears throat> and looking for these things in breath, uh, uh, yeah, it, it, you, you have to you have to narrow down which ones which. So. But Kurt, this is where the in vitro study come in. I mean, this is when uh, you have to prove the specificity, the mm-hmm. specificity of the compounds. Of course, you can do whatever you can, and we do whatever we can to mind the variability that people can have. I mean, something like VOC, as you say, is very variable, but uh, you need to make sure that the compounds that you're looking at, it's really related to the pathology. So that's mm-hmm. why, you know, you have to test it in different ways, taking it out from the complexity of the human organism and like trying to prove the specificity of it. Yeah, it's really cool. Well, I'm happy it's finally got to that point. I mean, it, it you know, watching it over you know, when I when I first start, started watching this, not as long as you have, but only about the last dozen or so years, um, we were still trying to figure out how to get samples the right way. And there's a big argument about whether it should be the deep breath or the not deep breath, or should you fast, should you not fast? It sounds like that got worked out. The the TDGCMS or TDMS part of it's largely worked out. And then now, now here we are in the back end now, finally with these large studies to, to prove out the techniques. That's really cool. So, yeah. In the last years, there were a lot of progress, I would say. Yeah, I think so too. Well, anyway, I, I'll talk, if everyone who knows me personally, I'll talk all day if you give me a chance. So I'm, I'm going to shut myself down. Uh, <laughs> me too, you know. I'm a very person, as you can say. So I can talk all day as well. <laughs> yeah. But, well, anyway, to, uh, to, to, to just, but, before, but before we go, um, I wouldn't give you a chance. So, so where, where are we going to, what are you up to in the short term? Are you, you going to any conferences? You got any good papers coming out I should be looking for? Well, uh, I hope I will have some good papers coming. I don't know yet, but uh, <laughs> they're keeping me waiting. But um, yeah, I uh, know I just uh, I did a good uh, conference season uh, last month. And uh, uh, no, for the moment, uh, I don't have anything planned, but um, for sure for next year, I hope to have uh, preliminary results of the epilepsy project that I can present because we already recruited more than 50 patients. So I really hope that this will be my next step. 
Yeah. Oh, and that's the one I'm going to be watching for, obviously, for my own personal reasons. <laughs> I may contact you, you know, if I do a patient's event. Sure, love to. Um, and as we said all along, you know, I'd, I'd far rather breathe into a bag than sit in an MRI tube one more time. So yeah. <laughs> I'll be more, more than happy to one. do that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Um, that leads us more more or less to the end uh, to of, of this episode. So wh where can customers or patients or other people can reach you if they are interested in your work? So is, is there a website you can mention? And we put that in the show note. So let, let us know at this point, please. Yes, Jan, thanks for this. I have a personal page on the Imperial College website where there is my email. So if any patient is interested to be part of the studies or someone wants just to know more about the research, please contact me. Yeah, thank you for being our guest and have a deep breath of knowledge. <sighs> Send us to, uh, over, <laughs> over the digital lines here <laughs> uh, for recording this podcast episode. I'm very excited to to see your results later on if, if your papers are coming out. So, uh, and it was fun for um, from my side to talk with you and get these deep breath information. Thank you for that. <laughs> yep. From my Thanks side, I you. say goodbye and yep. now it's Kurt. Kurt's. Yep, and, and yeah, I'm looking. Well, it, it, it's 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 not goodbye. It's just it's just uh, hold on. We'll be talking later. I can't I can't wait to see what your results look like. So we'll be. We'll, We'll be speaking with each other again really soon, I'm sure. That's great. Thanks for having me. It was very fun. Yeah. Yeah, for me too. Yes, definitely. Thank you very much and bye-bye. Bye. 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 bye.